and welcome to the Strange Blue Podcast. My name's Jason Barnard. That was Dave Kelly and Fair Theme. What a great honour it is today to welcome John Altman here today. Hugely, hugely talented composer, music arranger, orchestrator, conductor, musician. Obviously, as we always do on the Strange Brew, we'll be featuring a range of tracks associated with his musical journey. And and this really is only a a tiny slice of of one element of his uh, musical journey, really. Anyway, first of all, huge welcome, John. Thank you. Great to be here. So we, we featured Dave Kelly to start, just to ease us in gently in, in, in terms of uh, some of the work that you were featured on. And that's relatively early in terms of the, the work that you recorded, certainly in relation to sort of the rock folk blues idiom. Maybe it's worth just starting out in terms of how you, you know, you were on that 60s music scene at a relatively early age and got to know many of the artists involved there. Yes, I was very lucky. I mean, I started playing sax when I was 13, uh, having sort of had music piano lessons from 7 till 11, and immediately joined a band and uh, gigged the night after I bought my saxophone, which must have been horrendous, absolutely horrible. But very luckily, I like my, a lot of people of that age, I moved through a lot of local bands. And being a sax player, there weren't that many. So I, I was always in, in demand. I mean, my early schoolboy bands uh, from 13, unbelievable the number of people who went on to have big careers in the business. You know, my my first group included Martin Edelman, who f- formed Sin, that became Yes. Yeah. And Chris Squire used to hang out with us. Then the next group was Stuart Epps, who worked a lot with Jimmy Page and Elton John, and Clive Franks, who was with Elton John. And then the next group I went into, um, Kim Rue, who you've interviewed, and Walking on Sunshine and was Soft Boys and everything else. And then the next group I went into had Chaz Jankel, who uh, I know, Carida, um, Pete Van Hook, Mike and the Mechanics, Rick Parnell of Spinal Tap, uh, John Rose, the music publisher. This, these are all just local bands, you know. So by the time I was 18, 19, left school, and before I went to university, I was already getting on the scene. And as you know, in those days, most of the bands like Fleetwood Mac and John Mayle and Cream even were playing in the upstairs rooms of pubs. They weren't in stadiums. Literally, you'd pop down to your local pub because I, I, I went to university and I was on a full grant, I never needed to become a fully professional, which sort of helped me because yeah. I could go and sit in anywhere. And I was already, I added flute, which you heard on the Dave Kelly track and clarinet. So I started showing up at gigs and because I knew the people vaguely, you know, I would then be with Peter Green. I would then be with Nick Drake. I would then be with John Martin, Beverly, um, Bridget St. John, Kevin Ayers. I, I formed this sort of network, as it were, of incredible people who I knew I could just drop in and play with. So when I went off to university, I, I was recording. You know, I did my first record, which um, was that running Sunflower Band album with various people from Fleetwood Mac and the Kellys and Peter Green's on it. And then Peter and I put a band together when he left Fleetwood Mac, which was astonishing. And I wish it was recorded, but it wasn't. And uh, that's how I got to that 
level at that age, that young age. And then things fell in my lap, like Muddy Waters wound up playing at my 21st birthday party. And oh. yeah, it's just nonsense, you know. I mean, you, you can't make it up. Impossible. There's no greater education, really, being on that music scene. And just to mention Dave Kelly, he, he was on, obviously... A, very renowned uh, blues artists, although the first track there was more in the, the folk yeah. genre. And Dave was one of those artists that was on the fringes of Fleetwood Mac, as you were. Yeah, I mean, we all knew each other and we all played with each other. And what, what was quite interesting was all the people on that circuit, that was the circuit that the Rolling Stones had been on. And they had literally catapulted from playing at Studio 51 on Sundays to stadiums in America within weeks. You know, it wasn't months and months and years and years. It was literally, oh, we're going to pluck you out of here and on you go there. Even I went to Led Zeppelin's first gig, which was in a room upstairs in a pub. You know, my ears still hurt. (laughs) The thing about the scene was very fluid and so many people were so creative. People have often asked me, oh, you know, must have been amazing to play with Nick Drake and Nick was amazing but so was John Martin and so was Dave Kelly and so were Andy Fernback and Bridget St John they were all fantastic you know so I I never thought oh Nick is special you know in fact I've been writing my book and I found a diary entry where I was tried to convince him not to give up playing live gigs and I spent an hour with him and John Martin trying to talk him out of stopping playing. It was a week before he actually did. So it's, it's quite extraordinary, really, to be the on the fringes of all that exciting music and also being a part of it. That's going to be one hell of a book, isn't it, John? Well, it's going to be interesting, you know, because I carried it through, as it were, to have gone from you know, Muddy Waters and Nick Drake through to Prince and Amy Winehouse and John Legend. There's no one else. I'm, I have to say, I'm, I'm the only person who's done that and survived. <laughs> I think I've survived. And you mentioned Kevin Ayres there, with our next track being Guru Banana. But again, you look at that session, Oli Halsall, obviously Kevin there, yourself, and Elton John as well on, on that session as well. So again, it's a real testament to the, the scene that was around and, you know, musicians just all cross-germinating. Oh, totally. I mean... Elton was a fan of Nick Drake. You know, he was a fan of Kevin's, which is why Kevin signed to John Reed, I think. I mean, Kevin was offered the gig with Hendrix before Noel Redding and turned it down. The great thing about Kevin and Peter was, it sounds crazy, but you really never knew what the gig was going to be. You didn't know what songs were going to be played. You didn't know what, there wasn't a set list. There was nothing. You just got on stage They started something, so you joined in, and then they started something else, and you joined in. And I loved that. Maybe it was because the part of me, you know, I I didn't join a band per se and say, right, you know, you're backing Arthur Conley, and you've got to play sweet soul music every night and never deviate from the record. It was experimentation, and it was always something new. That that was a great thing, and I, I loved playing with Kevin... I think the last time I played with him was actually 2000 in LA. So I had 40 years almost of, of, of playing with him, really, which I loved. And it was never any different from start to finish. 
his face Says gonna save the human race He laughs a lot as he climbs to fame Now what's his name? Banana. That's me and I'll show you the light I've got the answers and they're alright Cause I'm divine and you can be the same What's my name? And a bit of a tie in relation to our next track in terms of Ollie Halsell, who played on that Kevin Ayres material, uh, The Ruttles, Cheese and Onions. Maybe it's worth just talking about how you got involved with Neil Innes, because I th- there's a bit of a sort of <laughs> build up in terms of The Ruttles, and there is a bit of a theme that goes on as we'll cover in the podcast as well. Ollie and I were very, very close friends. And I don't just mean musically. I would go around there virtually every night and play board games, you know, and when he was away, I'd, I'd pop around and see his missus and play board games. It sounds mad, but we, we, we were that close. And Ollie always involved me in things that he was doing musically, let's say, uh, either directly or indirectly. So he'd just joined uh, John Heisen's band, Tempest, and they were playing at the Marquee. And he said, oh, you know, come down. So I drove him down to the gig and we were hanging out and whatever. And he got to know Neil. And we we hung out at the bar. And Neil and I had met briefly when he was in the Bonzos. But not, yeah. uh, you know, not intimately or anything. We hit it off. So Ollie on the way home said, oh, uh, I'm recording with Monty Python tomorrow with Neil. Do you, do you want to come and play and of course I was a fanatic Monty Python you know great fantastic so I rolled up the studio and uh, that was it you know I went we got on really well 
And I was so accepted into the Pythons inner circle as the music guy. And that's where I stayed as well. <laughs> I did everything Neil did thereafter, you know, for years and years, all the Innis Book of Records, all the Secret Policeman's Balls, every Neil Innis record, live shows, you know, rattles. It really spiraled from, from that evening. And Cheese and Onions was was actually a song that was originally pre the film. In uh, Rutland Weekend Television, I think. So that was Eric Idle was involved. That's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, what happened with, um, I know you spoke to John Halsey and he probably told you the same mm. story-ish, but um, uh, they'd done a little spoof on the Beatles for Rutland Weekend Television, like a five-minute segment. And when um, Eric went over to do Saturday Night Live, as it was, or Saturday Night, as it was called then, uh, he showed that sequence because there was a running gag that the they'd offered $3,000 for the Beatles to get back together. <laughs> and the mailbag was so huge, Lorne Michaels said, well, let's make a special. So Eric rang Neil and said, have you got 20 more songs we can do? The amazing thing about the Ruttles, of course, was the Beatles had only broken up seven or eight years earlier. So... I could book people who played on Beatles sessions. George Harrison was in the studio. You know, it was it was like making a Beatles thing, but not really the Beatles. Uh, George was marvellous. It's almost beggar's belief that, you know, the Ruttles was basically the same time as Life of Brian and the Innis Book of Records. They all came in a great wodge. And meanwhile, I'm I'm playing with Van Morrison on the road and, you know, it sort of <laughs> helped... <laughs> somebody free my brain from all this mania great time yeah and when you listen to the the ruttles the, the arrangements of some of those tracks and this the strings aping kind of that psychedelic period as as you can tell on cheese and onions and yeah piggy in the middle and all all that material were you kind of like emulating um a bit of george martin there well totally totally not only that but because i knew who was playing on all these things I could ring them and get them. So incredibly, you know, the the cellists had been on a lot of the Beatles records. They would go, you know, uh, that's what we did. And I, as soon as I heard that, I went, that's it. That's what we've got to have. So all the vibratos of the string players are the same. And when we did Double Back Alley, I rang David Mason, who played piccolo trumpet on um, Penny Lane. And he wasn't actually free, but he recommended Cliff Haynes, who did a great job. And then I, I parodied, you know, I mean, it, the whole thing was really parodies of Beatle arrangements. You know, George Martin, if he if he did a full orchestra, I did a solo piano going plonk, you know, and it worked really well. I mean, it, you know, they all loved it. Uh, George Martin loved it, apparently. George Harrison loved it. I mean, it was a lovely conversation I learned about about three days ago, which was George Harrison said, uh, Ollie Housel's guitar solo on Love Life, it's a send-up of my guitar playing, isn't it? And Neil said, yeah. And, and George went, oh, okay. <laughs> well, that was wonderful, you know, <laughs> this indignant comment, you know. He's sending me up, isn't he? Yeah. Oh, all right. I was being to ask you, you mentioned it, that, that final piano note in uh, Cheese and Onions. Yep. Whose idea was that? Was it yours or Neil's? That was me. Wow. I mean, it's one thing having the song, which is Beatlesque, but it's those 
touches on top that just yeah double oh, it, on, on uh, love life the original demo that neil gave me had uh, liberty bell the monty python theme at the beginning basically all the years i worked with neil he never told me what i should write or anything like that i always just gave him what i thought was best so we worked really well together and i decided that liberty bell was just too silly you know it just didn't fit so I said, well, let's do the Marseillaise, you know, because at the beginning of... Uh, no, let's do John Brown's Body, because at the beginning of um, All You Need Is Love, they've got the Marseillaise. So um, I wrote John Brown's Body for the intro, and uh, that's what that's what they went with. So I was throwing in touches, probably without realising it, that, that stuck. Wow, that's fantastic to know about that final note, Doink. <laughs> Oh, yeah. Yeah. No, I, I think originally Neil thought it was going to be like a big chord, like um, like the end of, you know, Day in the Life, really. But I thought, no, we've got to make it funny, you know, because it's, it's been so serious up till that point. And then the animation was absolutely brilliant. So um, it, it sort of added. I, I loved the film. I, I thought it was wonderful. I didn't have any involvement in it at all. I, I was knocked out.
And then we've got to discuss Monty Python, of course. And, and what pe- many people won't know was your extensive involvement in uh, Look on the Bright Side of Life, because I understand that when it came to you, it was more of Eric Idle's sort of sketch of a song rather than what we finally heard. Yeah, I mean, it, it was Eric just playing guitar and singing it, you know, not even in the voice of that he uses in the film. It was just basically, here's a song I've written. And uh, the other guys freely admit that they weren't that impressed, you know, that, oh, okay, he's written a song, you know, oh, it's all right, you know. But they didn't have an ending for the film. It was like, well, he's going to get free, well, he's going to do this, well, he's not going to get free. How do we finish it? And Eric just said, well, let's have this song. And suddenly, because I, 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 I sort of said, well, you know, it should be a, like a Busby Barkley type thing. We turned it into a Busby Barkley type thing. And suddenly it was dancing on crosses and all that, you know, which was great. But I have to say, you know, my, Michael, I'm, I still talk to a lot. And he said, oh, I, I, I didn't think that it was very good. It was all right, you know. And Terry Jones absolutely loathed it. So it's, it's interesting how history is sort of turned, you know. It's that one moment, isn't it, from the film that has got into the national consciousness. And I wish I'd known it. I did another session that afternoon and I have no idea what it was. None. I, I went on to Air Studios from Chapels and uh, did the whistling and scooted out the door. I have no idea what, what was going on. If I'd known, I'd have milked it, you know, and just been, oh, right, this is great. You know, I've got to stay with this. But it never happened. Terry Gilliam actually called you The Hidden Man, and that's the title of your forthcoming book. Um, The Hidden Man, as we've already discussed in terms of some of these roles in terms of music, people don't know the role that you've played in in, on all this. No, well, I guess it works two ways, doesn't it? It's um, if you want a normal life out of a limelight, you sit back and let everybody else take the glory. And then when you sort of burst forth and go, hello, here I am, everyone says, well, who the hell are you? You know, who wants to know about you? And to be involved, as you said, in so many things that have been, I don't feel that I'm tangential in the sense, you know, oh, I met uh, Madonna coming out of a restaurant once or something like that. Mm. But I can say, well, I arranged George Michael's biggest hit record or... You know, I brought Rod Stewart back or I got Pierce Brosnan his movie break. And it's all true. Yeah, that's the frightening thing. But nobody will know that because, you know, I chose not to be in the limelight in a way. Some things in life are bad. They can really make you mad. Other things just make you swear and curse. When you're chewing on life's gristle, that grumble give a whistle and this'll help things turn out for the best and always look on the bright side of life always look on the light side of life if life seems jolly rotten there's something you've forgotten and that's to laugh and smile and dance and sing When you're feeling in the dumps Don't be silly chumps Just purse your lips and whistle That's the thing Ain't always look on the bright side of life Come on Always 
is quite absurd And death's the final word You must always face the curtain with a bow Forget about your scene Give the audience a grin Enjoy it, it's your last chance anyhow So always look on the bright side of Shit, when you look at it Life's a laugh and death's a joke, it's true You'll see it's all a show Keep them laughing as you go Just remember that the last laugh is on you And always look on the bright side of life Always look on the right side of life It's available in the foyer. And next to an artist who you mentioned earlier, and you worked extensively with him, especially in the sort of live spaces, Van Morrison, we've got um, Moondance from a live version from his uh, Wavelength talk. Well, it was interesting. I, I got to know him in about 74 when he broke up the Caledonia Soul Orchestra and he came to live in London and really got to know him through Pete Van Hook, who, of course, was drummer with him for years. And we, we became very close friends. And he always said to me, you know, oh, we should do something musically. We will, one day we'll do something. But um, the first thing we did is in 77, he had a band with um, Dr. John, Mo Foster, Pete Van Hook and Mick Ronson. It was a very interesting combination. And they played at the London gig for Granada Television. And at half time, Van said, right, jam session. So I, I got on sax. Uh, Brian Auger came up. Uh, Roger Chapman sang backing vocals. Bobby Tench got up. Ray Russell got up. And we jammed. And it was fantastic. And at the end of it, it was like, okay, we've got to stop now. No, 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 we want to go on. We want to go on. Really after that, Van said to me, right, I want to form a band like this band, a larger one, and I want you to rewrite everything that I do. And that's what I did. I, I rewrote all his charts. And all he asked me was, where do I come in? It wasn't sort of, well, this one should sound like this. And obviously I was faithful to, you know, what had gone before. But I also wanted to tart up a few that I thought were maybe a bit dated or, you know, maybe with this lineup we need to be a bit more 
jazzy or something like that, you know. And we, we put the band together for the Wavelength tour. I was supposed to play on the record, but Van never showed up in the studio the day I got there. So that, that went out the window. And then I went back to do the Into the Music tour in Europe, which was also great fun. And then but because I'd started doing Python and writing a lot for the BBC, I decided, well, you know what? My, I think my future is actually in writing rather than in touring. And I, I stepped away, you know, and that, that was the last live tour I really ever did in 1980, which 79, which is a long time ago. Um, disappeared into the studios, really, for the next God knows how long.
And you mentioned the studio, of course, which is, leads us perfectly on to George Michael and, and kissing a fool. And I don't know if it's a similar situation with the Eric Idle uh, look on the bright side of life, but when uh, George Michael presents you that track, was it again more stripped back and then you build it up? Yeah, it was. It, it was interesting. He he rang me and um, rang me at home. And George Michael here, and you think, yeah, yeah, okay, you know, <laughs> who's having a laugh? And it was. And he, he said to me, you're the only person who can do this with me. Went, oh, oh, okay. And he said, yeah, he said, I, I love the Alison Moyer record, that old devil called Love. And I said to him, well, I didn't produce that. You know, I, I was the arranger. And he said, yeah, but you, we know you did all the hard work. You know, it's, it's, the producer is nothing, you know. Oh, that's very nice. So um, he sent me a demo, which was basically the song was about three quarters finished. It wasn't finished. And it was piano and guitar, really. There was nothing else. There's no drums or anything. So I, I just put the whole thing together and put the horn section together. And when we did it, he he actually said at one point, you inspired me to become a musician. Wow. I was like, oh, What? And I knew that his father owned the restaurant where we used to go when we rehearsed. With, and this is with Chaz Jankel and Pete Van Hook. And he would sit outside and listen to our rehearsals. And that's what decided him. He wanted to become musical, you know, which is amazing. But we, we got on well. And um, I, I was very flattered to find out later that when he toured, he, he played our track because he said to his band, you're not going to be able to play it like these guys. So that, that was nice. And that song has got a real sort of classic jazz feel and obviously you're steeped into that music. So was that kind of you shaping that track in, into the, the feel of it? Well, that's the feel he wanted. So, yes, I mean, it's six of one half dozen of the other. I mean, I, I did it that way because I could tell that's how he wanted it to be. And... Um, According to my great friend, Steve Sidwell, who did a load of work with him, um, I rang him after the first day and said, look, I don't know whether he likes what we're doing, whether he hates it. You know, it's, it's all, let's do another one. Let's go on. Let us do this, do that. And Steve said, well, you're going back, aren't you? I said, yeah, I'm going back tomorrow or the day after. He said, well, then he likes it. You know, it doesn't, it, you'd know soon enough if he didn't, because he'd say it's not happening there's the door, bye-bye. But that was very much what he wanted, you know. And I, I knew, for example, I knew that I'd, I'd just discovered, I mean, I've not discovered, I hate, hate to say that, but I'd used for the first time uh, Ian Thomas on drums. And I knew that George would absolutely love his drumming. So I booked him on the session. It was his first recording session. And, of course, George loved him and used him thereafter, you know. Nobody, that was his choice. His drumming choice, so that that was good. But um, he, he was great to work with, and, and it's again it stood the test of time, which is amazing. You know that that I'm, I'm very lucky that almost all the records I did are still listened to. You know, there are artists who are still big, and people still buy the record or talk about them. You know, and as their favorite record. You know, selfishly, I have to think that maybe I had something to do with it, but probably not, you know, because people like Rod Stewart or Tina Turner. But I do feel that I maybe gave them something that they wouldn't have had otherwise. Brief I'd sprout, you know, it's, who knows? When you hear Kissing a Fall, in a way, it could have been released 
at any time in the last hundred years. It cannot date. It's it's always current. Yeah. Again, I'm I'm very lucky because, and funnily enough, I had this discussion with um, almost uh, with Mark Ronson, who I work with, and just about the fact that so many things that people think are current suddenly become unhip and not current, whereas things that just sort of go right the way through, they're not of their moment, but they're of every moment. And that that to me was what I, I always felt, you know, I mean, it, certainly hearing a lot of like 80s records with sort of sin drums and cheesy synths and you go, oh God, you know, really it's as bad as 80s haircuts, you know, <laughs> it will all come back, I'm sure. But I mean, the thing is, if if you're, if you're never in fashion, you're never going to go out of fashion. So you know that that was always my my mantra, as it were. You know, don't do anything too of that moment because it won't be of that moment anymore. Make a lover feel a fool 
next to downtown train and released in the, the late 80s here but again has a, a classic sound and um a bigger more broader production than the tom waits um original so can you tell me about um you know the circumstances of getting involved with rod and then how that track developed yeah i mean i think it's all really down to trevor horn who was producing him and to be fair rod's career wasn't exactly at its top at the time, you know. Trevor suggested Downtown Train, and Rod had never heard of it, didn't know the song, didn't know much about it. But we went ahead and started working on it, and as soon as he heard it, Rod went, oh, oh, I've got to get into shape. And apparently, after I'd done my bit, because I did my bit in, in London, he went in the studio, and the key was too low. It was set when his voice was out of shape. So all my arrangement was done in the key of G and Trevor somehow, before auto-tune and all the magic dust that you could sprinkle, sped the track up without speeding it up. You know, they took it up to B flat, which is quite a long way. And I heard it in the Virgin Megastore in LA and I thought, oh, this sounds familiar, but it doesn't. And I realised it was downtown train and I went up to the DJ. They had an in-house DJ then said, would you mind playing that again? It's my arrangement. And I listened to it, and the strings and the core anglais had a really ethereal, otherworldly sound. All the vibratos were wrong because it was, it was speeded up. So what, what seemed like a hideous sort of uh, error actually turned out to make the record what it was. And um, there are all kinds of things. Jeff Beck's guitar in the middle is amazing, and... Trevor's production, as usual in those days, was second to none. You know, I, I did a lot of work with Trevor in, at that time. And all the things I did with him just sound great now. Simple Minds and um, Tina Turner, Rod, you know, they, they all sound marvellous. Just as an example, working with Trevor, how much of a brief would he, he give you in, when he sort of presented a track and, and asked you to do an arrangement? Interestingly, he really let me just get on with it what, the way I felt it. And this is before intensive demoing of stuff. So I, I, I would, very luckily on most of the movies I did and all the records I did, I never took in a demo. I just went in with a bit of music under my arm and went, right, okay, strings, boom. I mean, if Trevor suddenly said, oh, you know what, keep the strings quiet for the first chorus, but bring them in in the second one. Or, or maybe in this chorus, we should just have semi-breathes, you know, behind the, the voice. So you would change things on, on, on the session, basically. But he never, certainly with me, I know he had a reputation for, you know, switching things around. With me, I never heard an arrangement and thought, oh, do you know what? I wrote something there and it's gone. It was always in there somewhere. So I was very lucky. And uh, I worked with Trevor probably from 
I think I started on Simple Minds on Street Fighting years and went right through, I'm trying to think what the last thing I did with him was probably Tina. And then after that, he asked me to do Seals, that first album, but I wasn't, I was in LA doing a movie. So that's all went out the window. And basically, at the, in, by the mid-90s, I was almost out of doing records completely because films had taken over. And I think that mentality, that pigeonholing mentality that people have was, oh, he's doing a movie, he's not going to want to do an arrangement. So I, I sort of vanished off that uh, arranging scene that I'd, I'd spent so much time on.
A theme of this discussion is about how things that you've done, or much of it, hasn't dated because it never goes in or out of fashion. And the next track is the perfect case in point, Bjork's It's So Quiet. How did you get involved in arranging that track? I mean, such a startling song, and which now goes down in as a, as a moment in music history, really. It does, doesn't it? I mean, <laughs> I wish she was a bit fonder of it than she seems to be, because she's sort of a tried to disown it a bit, which I don't really understand. But um, apparently a fan had sent a recording of it to her and it was a B-side of a Betty Hutton record in the 50s and said, you should do this. And she said, yeah, yeah, that's great. So um, Isabel Griffiths, who's probably the orchestral booker in England for every big movie, but at the time was just starting out and had been my advertising producer. Um, she called me and said, can you do a big band chart for Bjork? You know, and I, I said, yeah, sure. You know, so they basically, they sent me a copy of the Betty Hutton record. And it sounded, it was great. It, it, the, it sounded, a, obviously, quality-wise, it sounded dated. It sounded like it was a 40s track. And I just, I sort of polished it up and gave it a gloss. And I'd never met Bjork and the first time I met her was actually in the studio. And as you know, recording sessions, not, not with obviously with pop bands, but with session players, are booked from 10 in the morning till one, three hours. And by quarter to one, she hadn't shown up. <laughs> so <laughs> Pressure. you can imagine the, the stages of panic that I was going through because it, it was basically vocal driven. You know, we couldn't record a click track and say, right, sing to that, because it got slower, it got faster. It, You know, it was... She arrived in the studio at 10 to 1 and uh, with a big smile and said, uh, what's happening? I said, well, what's happening is we lose everyone in 10 minutes. And she said, oh, I thought they were here all day. And I said, I'm sorry, they're not. They all have to go. And she said, right, we better get on with it and do it. And... Four and a half minutes later, we finished the record. What you hear is is first take, live, her singing and the band playing. Unbelievable, you know. <laughs> so people say to me, oh, how long did it take to record It's So So Quiet? And I said, well, how long is the record? That's how long it took. That's how records used to be recorded often, live, one take. Yeah, yeah. I, I anticipated, well, well, we'll need three or four to make it really work and... I don't even remember this, but Ralph Salmons, who played drums on it, says we did do a second take. I don't remember that. 
but it obviously wasn't as good as the first take. But the first take was absolutely perfect, you know. And when you also think that it was in um, Angel Studio One, that's sort of no longer functioning, sadly, but uh, she was in the vocal booth across there. Sorry, I'm pointing and I shouldn't be because I know this won't be. She was sort of diagonally to my left. The brass and saxes were on my right. And the bass, drums, uh, guitar were behind me. And the piano was in a booth over there. So none of the people in the room heard her. Only the rhythm section heard her. The front line heard the rhythm section and everybody was following my conducting, you know, be on the ice. Basically, if I go wrong, everything goes wrong. If she goes wrong, everything goes wrong. It didn't, you know, it just first take, done, brilliant. And it sounds like it. It's got that excitement to it of of first take. But I was very, very impressed. And... I hung out with her quite a lot while, while she made posts, you know, because I would go in uh, when Diodato was there, you know, and hang out with him and sit in the studio. And I'd just look in and see how they were getting on, you know, and it, it, it was fun. But when we did Top of the Pops, they couldn't find her. And uh, she was in the car park listening to the ground, lying on the ground, listening to the ground. <laughs> different. She certainly marched, marched to her own drummer. I think that's the thing. Brilliant. Great fun to work with. You ring the bell, bell, 
I got hit. There's no mistake. This is it! Till it's over and then. It's nice and quiet. Shh, shh. But soon again. Shh, shh. Starts another big riot. And now we get to about 10 years ago and Evan Rachel Wood, I'd Have You Anytime, which was the uh, from the Chimes of Freedom album, The Songs of Bob Dylan. Now that was an Amnesty International record, wasn't it? An yeah. Amnesty. There's quite a number of connections about this track. You know, there's the George Harrison connection and there's the Amnesty connection through the secret policeman's ball as well. So maybe it's worth touching on a bit of that, maybe the, the secret policeman's ball stuff. Well, I did the first two Secret Policeman's Balls uh, as musical director. And the first one, apart from Neil Innes sort of, we wheeled on the big band to surprise everyone, it was pretty much solo artists. So Donovan, Pete Townsend did a duet with John Williams, um, Victoria Wood did a song, uh, Dame Edna Everidge did a song, you know. But Martin Lewis, who produced the show, decided that for the second one, we should have a band and have more music. So he asked me to put a band together and between us, we would recruit, inverted commas, big names, you know, to to perform. And it came about interestingly because he got Sting through Sting's acting agent, not through the, the music side. Phil Collins heard about it and said, I want to be involved. He, uh, Martin rang Eric Clapton and he said, can I bring a friend who's Jeff Beck? Then um, Bob Geldof and Midge Ure came on board. This is before Live Aid. So this gave them the idea. And then there was Sheena Easton and Donovan and heaven only knows who else. And I put together a really good session band behind it. Chaz Jankel was on it. Uh, Mark Isham was in trumpets. My cousin Simon Phillips was on drums. You know, it was a great, great band. And we we did uh, the finale, I Shall Be Released, you know. And this sort of germinated the whole idea, not only of Live Aid, but of the subsequent Amnesty concerts where Bruce Springsteen and U2 and the police and everybody sort of came on board and did these concerts. So Martin and I stayed in touch. He called me and said, we're doing tribute to the songs of Bob Dylan, but there's a song that Bob Dylan wrote with George Harrison. Would you like to do it? And who who would you like to play on it? And I heard the song and said, well, we both agreed. Let's do it in a sort of 40s style. And I said, well, I would like to have uh, Patrice Russian, great solo artist, Clayton Cameron, who was Sammy Davis's drummer and Tony Bennett's drummer, Ed Livingston, who then was playing with Herbie Hancock. 
and Lawrence Juba, who was in Wings, you know, to make that connection. And then we got Tom Scott, who was uh, not only in George Harrison's band, but was really close friend of George. And then I had my George connection because George mixed uh, Bright Side of Life and was involved with the Ruttles. And he, he and I were very matey. So we did that. And Martin said, look, I, I put on a show a couple of years ago and uh, the actress Evan Rachel Wood sang and she was a knockout. And I think she knocked this into, out of the park. And he rang her and she agreed to do it. You know, she'd never done anything like that before. And it came out fantastically. You know, it was really good. And Jeff Emmerich engineered it. Oh. Did Jeff, em- Jeff Emmerich? No, Jeff Emmerich engineered the Pete Seeger track that we did on it. But um, John Richards engineered it. So it was wonderful, you know. And for me, it was great because having not really been working on records for a long time, I was suddenly doing a record again arranging a, a Dylan Harrison track as well into a jazz 40s feel. Was there something about that song that, that lent itself to that style? Yes. I, I, I thought that, that, you know, that the chord structure of the song immediately suggested that it would take that because it, the first two chords were slightly jazzy chords. So I thought, well, I'll extend that and make that into a thing for the whole, the whole song. And it came out, it came out really well, I think. And it was great, you know, great to work with Patrice and Tom and all, all of them and Evan, you know, it was, it was, for me, it was like old times to go back in and work on somebody else's record. Oh, you see is my 
to close, John, it would be re- remiss without touching on some of your soundtrack work. And mm. what we have next is one of the most famous scenes in James Bond and very famous tank chase from GoldenEye. Now, much of that soundtrack has got a bit more of a contemporary feel. Yeah. But I understand for this particular part of the film, there was a sort of request that it was a bit more of a conventional Bond feel, which, you know, when we hear the final track, we definitely hear. And, and then you were called in. Yeah, I mean, I, I was on the film from the start. What happened was not only was I writing a lot of movie scores myself, I was arranging and conducting scores for other people at the same time. So I, I was very lucky I got to work with Elmer Bernstein and Rushi Sakamoto, Mark Isham, as we mentioned, Julie Stein. And I started working a lot with Eric Serra, the French composer. And we had done a film called uh, Leon, which in America was called The Professional. A wonderful film with Gary Oldman and Jean Renault. And the Bond producers were relaunching the franchise. And they said, we want a new James Bond sound. And they hired Eric and by default me, you know, I went along as his orchestrator. And from the very early days, it became quite obvious that that wasn't actually really what they wanted at all. And Eric was used to working with Luke Bessel, who idolised him. They'd been to school together. Everything Eric wrote, Luke put in the film. He didn't even show up at the sessions. Suddenly you've got a director and an editor and a dubbing editor and three producers, and they're all making suggestions. And Eric was like, no, I don't want to hear any of your suggestions. You don't know anything about music. Leave me alone. I do what I do. So basically they got to the stage where they were dubbing the film and they decided there was no traditional James Bond moment in the whole film. And this had to be a traditional James Bond moment. So they rang me and said, would I write that sequence? And I went into Pinewood on the Friday and I basically said, look, I'm not doing it if unless Eric says it's okay for me to do it because he brought me onto the film. They basically said, well, we're going to do it anyway. So um, anyway, the director rang Eric and he said, yeah, John can do it, go ahead. So I literally went into Pinewood and saw the whole eight-minute sequence. I said, you don't need to tell me what to do. I know exactly what you want. Took it away, wrote it on Saturday. I orchestrated it on Sunday, copied on Monday, recorded on Tuesday, (laughs) dubbed on Wednesday, and the film came out on the Friday. So within a week it was created. But the thing was, I'd grown up watching James Bond movies, you know, I knew what they wanted. And luckily, I was able to deliver it, you know, but the interesting thing about the Bond sequences is that Monty Norman's theme had to be included, which was a given. And bizarrely, Monty sang with my jazz group. So (laughs) he was very pleased that I'd, I'd got his theme into the film, or there might well have been another lawsuit going on, I don't know. But um, what he did was um, the sequence starts with the tank bursting through the prison wall and then it sort of chases, it demolishes St. Petersburg, goes through a truck, has a statue land on top of it, you know, statue drops on... I mean, it's one absurdity on top of the other. And the thing about scoring an action sequence in a movie is 
you can't keep having climaxes. You know, it's, it's, you can't start with one and then where do you go? You know, you've got to go somewhere. So you've got to start somewhere, build, 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 build. So the trick really was to start reasonably big, include something of my own, go big again, but bigger than the first time, then go again bigger than the first time, the second time, then go even bigger. So it was like sort of climbing a mountain musically, but uh, it was great fun to do. And as you say, everybody, it's one of the three sequences that I've done in movies that everybody knows. You know, whether they know I did it or not, I don't know, but you've got Life of Brian, you've got this, and you've got the ship sinking in Titanic with the band playing on deck which is me again, you know. So it's not bad achievement, I think. Not bad, not bad. <laughs> not bad for a start. I mean, I feel like we've only uh, scraped uh, the surface here, John. As I mentioned earlier, um, there's certainly a book under in development, um, Hidden Man, I think that's on Equinox Publishing. So what, what are the timescales for that so people can look out for it? Well, it's supposed to be coming out in February. I'm sure it will. I mean, it's all finished now. And it touches on basically all these events, you know, plus, you know, fun encounters with the likes of Freddie Mercury and David Bowie and Sting and Prince and Stevie One, you know, just people I've interacted with along the way. Also, my days playing in hot chocolate, which was (laughs) something we didn't even go anywhere near, you know, which was great fun being in a chart-topping band, you know. Great band. So, yeah, one of the best live bands I've ever seen, and I was part of it. What can I say, John? We've only scraped the surface, but hopefully that means that people can dig in even more and into your career and, and see that uh, you are no longer the hidden man anymore. No, it's fantastic. Well, th- thanks very much for having me. My pleasure. Bye. Bye.
Thank you for listening to the Strange Brew podcast. If you do like the show, please consider a small donation to help keep the show archive online. It's 10 years since I started the podcast and hosting fees are increasing over time. All your support keeps the show running and helps me get amazing guests. To support me, just go to thestrangebrew.co.uk where you'll see a donate button on the homepage. Thank you very much. Plus, any reviews on your podcast services help to spread the word too. Thank you.